Shavuot, or you might call it Pentecost, is coming up, and it's traditional to study the book of Ruth. Now, why is that? Because Ruth takes place largely during the barley and wheat harvest that mark the time between Passover and the Feast of Weeks, a.k.a. Shavuot. And Ruth introduces a mystery into the scriptural account of King David. Namely this, how can the descendant of a Moabite be not only king of Israel, but also God's own choice for Israel's king? As we will see, this is strictly forbidden in the Mosaic Law, and this indeed poses a problem for legalists who see all of the laws as black and white, um, set in stone decrees. If we view the law as immovable, then we must reject David. But if we see the law as wisdom guidelines, and even as Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, um, himself said, allowance is made because of hardness of heart, then the beauty of the story of Ruth just opens up for us like a rose and the debate subsides and we see that Yahweh truly is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series designed to uh, teach scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which my friend Matt Knapper plugged me into and I'm enjoying, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. And um might be a little loopy today. I, uh, I'll i talk about it at the end. I, um, I've been having health issues for, oh, geez, seven, eight months, actually many years now. And I had surgery on Monday to correct them. It always, you know, I'm one of those people with uh, anesthesia who... It takes a lot of days for me to kind of really snap out of it. So I'm going around like in a little bit of a fog. And uh, so hopefully this makes sense. But I'll talk about that at the end. And um, anyway, but for now, I want to talk about Ruth. Um, now, by the time this airs, you may have already observed Shavuot. There is a debate between people, um, and, it, and it goes back to um, Yeshua's time or before, and you had two groups, and you had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees said that the the ordinance to start counting the days to Shavuot, they say it begins um, the day after the first Sabbath of 
the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would put it on the second day of Unleavened Bread. And then you have the people, and, and this includes me here, who say, no, I look at the language and I see that I believe it says that it's the day after the first weekly Sabbath that falls during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so for me, uh, this year it's going to be May 23rd, but for some people they're going to be celebrating it a, a full week earlier. But that's okay, you know, because we can all study Ruth any time of the year. And um, this isn't a salvational issue. It's an issue where people look at the scripture and, and make different decisions. So I am not the Shavuot police. <laughs> So, but first of all, I want to talk about Moab. <clears throat> now, according to Genesis 19, and I'm sorry, you know, I had a tube down my throat on Monday, so I'm like, I've got, I've got a dry and scratchy throat. And I should have recorded this last week, but I just had so many things to do because I've got lifting restrictions for six stupid weeks. Can't vacuum for a few weeks. Can't mow the lawn. Can't do any of these things that, you know, of course it's spring and I need to be able to do. So I was doing all that stuff instead. So now I'm recording this with brain fog. <laughs> anyway, so Moab, according to Genesis 19, the Moabites and Ammonites came about because of incestuous relations between Lot and his two daughters. And if you have ever wondered why, how such a, you know, I wonder how such a thing could even happen in the first place. And why those girls would have considered it their duty. You know, I wrote about it in my curriculum book, Context for Adults, Sexuality, Social Identity, and Kinship Relations in the Bible. But anyway, you know, these are the reported origins of both Moab and Ammon, um, Israel's neighbors to the east and close kins, uh, close kin, much like the Ed Edomites of Mount Seir, only the, you know, coming about of the Edomites is not um, abhorrent. Um, now, all of these descended from Terah, Abraham's father. So were the Moabites and Ammonites cursed because of their origins? Well, no, of course not. In fact, God blessed the Ammonites and Moabites and gave them their own inheritance a land inheritance that Israel was not permitted to encroach upon or take away. Now, the problem with the Moabites and Ammonites came up when Israel was completing their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and they were trying to access the promised land from the east, requiring them to travel through the nations bordering Canaan. Now, we see this described in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. Now, Yahweh had absolutely forbidden the children of Israel to lay a finger on either the Moabites or the Ammonites, but he did give them a victory against the Amorites, entirely different, and against Bashan and against the Negev. And this was because, again, of Yahweh's covenant with Abraham, Lot's uncle. But the Moabites were terrified of Israel, and I guess they didn't get the memo that the Israelites weren't allowed to mess with them. And, and hence we get to their very famous encounter with Balaam, a pagan who, for some strange reason, could speak to and hear from Yahweh. And I guess he had his satellite dish tuned correctly or something. I don't know. 
And, and he was famous for this. So Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse Israel. And the whole account is a complete disaster for Moab and for a lot of cattle and for all those people who had to build all those altars on the spot to sacrifice them on. Excuse me. Oh, this may not go well. Um, Yahweh, of course, uses Balaam to bless Israel instead of curse them. Multiple times even, you know, making the entire story rather comical. However, the sequel is anything but comical. Balaam was not permitted to curse Israel. However, he did figure out a way to advise Moab into creating a set of circumstances where the men of Israel could bring curses onto themselves instead. So instead of providing hospitality to the children of Israel on their way through the promised land, the Moabites instead showed the men of Israel disastrous hospitality by throwing a huge cultic feast where the men ended up deciding to eat meat sacrificed to the Moabite gods and either engaging in cultic prostitution and therefore joining themselves to the Baalim of the Moabites or intermarrying. And I've heard good arguments for both, and both do count as prostitution in terms of idolatry, so they would have been described the same way. Now, one bold young couple actually entered the camp of Israel, you know, perhaps for more privacy. And Phineas, uh, the priest, the son of Aaron, speared them through um, while caught in the act. So through his back and through her belly. Now that day, 24,000 were Israelites were reported to have died of the plague that was unleashed against Israel, and all of the leaders of Israel who were involved with this idolatry were killed as well and hung outside the camp. <clears throat> but what would this have looked like from Moab's point of view? In my opinion, based on ancient Near Eastern culture, I don't believe they necessarily had ill intent. Now, certainly Balaam's advice almost, you know, certainly had ill intent, but then maybe not. Balaam could have actually just been giving what any pagan would consider to be good advice when faced with a threat from a more numerous people and their regional deity. Namely, if you can't beat them, join them and or get them to join you. Um, so you see, the Moabites would not have been able to even remotely imagine a god who was jealous and exclusive. That sort of thing just didn't happen in the ancient world. Yahweh was unique. Okay. He still is <laughs> in more ways than one. All of the God, all of the gods needed to be served and worshiped or the cosmic functions that they took care of would fall into ruin. The sun wouldn't come up. The rain wouldn't fall. The crops wouldn't grow, you know, etc. They didn't live in the sort of world where their sun god was demanding exclusive worship. Even the sun god needed the grain god served, or else he wouldn't get fed from the grain god's bounty. This was a completely interrelated system, even parasitic in some ways. The humans needed the gods, but the gods needed the humans even more. As we see, you know, in the Atrahasis epic, where Enlil uh, decides to destroy all humanity with a flood. And if it wasn't for one human being hidden away and saved, 
the gods would have all starved for, you know, lack of sacrifices. And that was like big oops, big lack of planning. And so, you know, it's, is it more symbiotic or um, more parasitic? I mean, obviously it's symbiotic. The gods and the people depended on one another for survival in their thought, but also it was very parasitic because the humans were only created to serve the gods in that in that line of thinking. And so, you know, I suspect that when the Moabites found themselves unable to destroy their enemies, that Balaam suggested an alliance instead. One that one brought about through, you know, alliances by marriage. And this was not unheard of in the ancient world. Marital alliances have been the way of peace between tribes and kingdoms, I imagine, since just about the beginning. As soon as two groups worship the same gods and are bound together in community by marriage and kinship, fighting tends to end. This is why ancient kings generally took so many wives. They were largely political alliances. Okay, So looking at this from Balak's point of view, they cannot hope to do anything to harm Israel. But they might just be able to become one with Israel. What Moab wouldn't have known is that Yahweh doesn't operate like they believe their gods do. He is the only God and there can be no others. So when the Moabites held a cultic feast and undoubtedly had their young virgin daughters dancing, as that's what happened, some of the men of Israel ended up attending. Uh, marriages were, you know, seemingly arranged and consummated, in my opinion, and that required the approval of the patriarchs. Hence, we see that there were elders and leaders involved, and they were the first to be punished and killed. Young men didn't just marry without their father's approval. And what Moab would have seen as two countries uniting by marriage, Yahweh saw as treachery and rebellion, idolatry and sexual immorality. It's really important to see these things from Moab's point of view in order to understand the story, okay? What they were doing was entirely logical, and I doubt if their intentions were nefarious in any way, because they just wouldn't have understood Yahweh's scruples about his people not worshipping anyone else. It was so contrary to everything they believed and understood about the way the world of gods worked, and that it might as well have been written in modern English and presented to them on a floppy disk. And I hope you guys all know what a floppy disk is. And I'm not even talking about the ones that we call floppy disks that were actually hard disks after we got rid of floppy disks. I'm talking about a real floppy disk. So I believe that Balaam's advice went like this. If you can't curse them, then join them. Throw a big party, invite them over, and allow them to meet your daughters. Give your daughters to their sons, and they will give their sons to marry your daughters. Um, or their daughters to marry your sons. I had a complete, oh boy. Uh, they're blessed after all. You know, your gods will be their gods and their God will be yours. Um, but regardless of how the Moabites saw their own actions or how Balaam saw them, Yahweh saw the effects and affected a covenant lawsuit against the children of Israel. Legally taking action for their covenant violation by way of a plague. In order to keep this from happening again, Moses enacted this added legislation against the Moabites and Ammonites in Deuteronomy that we will not find in Exodus or Leviticus. 
Um, this is Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 5. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, may ever enter the Lord's assembly. This is because they did not meet you with food and water on the journey after you came to Egypt, and because Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor, in... Uh, you know, on a normal day, I could probably do this. Aram Naharim was hired to curse you. Yet the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but he turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity as long as you live. Okay, so the specific charges against Moab and Ammon are severe in the ancient world. The implication that either Israel asked for hospitality and did not receive it, or that it was simply never offered at all, even though the people groups share close kinship ties. And yet, if that was their only crime, it would be a different story, as we see in Moses' follow-up regulations. Uh, verses 6 through 8. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity as long as you live. Uh, do not despise an Edomite because he is your brother. Do not despise an Egyptian because you are a resident, resident alien in his land. Um, the children born to them in the third generation may enter the Lord's assembly. So um, Edom flat out refused them passage and re even refused them food. Um, but... Um, even in exchange for money. But when Moab decided to curse what Yahweh had blessed, that was a direct act against Yahweh himself. And so Moab was forever barred from being a part of the assembly of Israel, the Ecclesia, a.k.a. the Kahal. It was an act of rebellion and a personal front. Therefore, Moses barred them from joining the assembly. And yes, I said Moses. The reason I said Moses is because of something Yeshua says about a regulation in the next chapter, namely Moses' statement about divorce. And we talked about that a few weeks back. In Mark 10, um, Yeshua calls Moses' statements about allowing divorce to be an allowance because of the hardness of your hearts. And then he calls his audience back to Genesis 2 and what God actually wanted. Men were dealing unfaithfully and treacherously with the with their wives because they took an allowance and were exploiting it for all they could get. And that's the problem with allowances. Allowances set our minds in the direction of what can I justify or get away with based on what is written down. And that's just what we do. We would rather read the Bible to see what we can get away with than to look into God's creational purposes for our lives. You see this a lot with polygyny proponents. Well, it isn't outlawed anywhere in the Torah. And that is true. But every time it is mentioned in the scripture, there are negative connotations and or consequences. Now, Moses allows slavery as well. And yet our creational purposes in Genesis 1 give us a mandate to rule over creation wisely, not over one another. But pro-slavery people, again, take an allowance and mistake it for permission and even approval. Now, Yeshua, on the other hand, in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, he destroys the allowances. He calls us back to that sin-free creational intent. Yeshua never makes any sort of allowances. 
Uh, that's why people detest the Sermon on the Mount. It's a painful reminder to those of us who like to live our lives on the edge. You know, pushing that envelope based on some part of scripture, you know, allows, okay? Uh, and, you know, it, it tells us that we're headed in the wrong direction. But that's the consequences of the Sinai Covenant not being written on our hearts and why Jeremiah promised a vast improvement. According to Jeremiah 31, not only would we have commandments in writing, but we would also have them in and on our hearts. And as our hearts are changed, our stomach for allowances disappears. So when reading Moses, we cannot forget that he made allowances. And Yeshua was clear in stating that Moses made allowances, not Yahweh. Yahweh didn't institute human kingship or slavery or divorce, or any other kind of oppression. Because in the beginning, that didn't exist. In the beginning, no one was abusing anyone else, and so no allowances were necessary. It all comes from a wrong way of looking at the Torah, one which Yeshua tried to correct. Just because Moses made an allowance doesn't mean that it's God's intention for our lives. If we view allowances in this light, then, you know, they're going to lead us in the wrong direction. Moses had to deal with reality and place limits on human depravity, but he never eradicated it. In a way, he just funneled it and controlled the spread. Even today, most debates about the commandments don't seem to relate to creational intent, but instead to conversations about what we can and cannot get away with, according to the written rules, and very little is said about, well, what would the love, mercy, and patience of God that we see from the beginning to the end of scriptures actually do? And so, back to Ruth, okay? We have Moses placing an all-time prohibition on Moabites ever entering the assembly of Israel. Does this really represent the heart of God? That an entire people group be beyond salvation and redemption? And to answer that, we must read the book of Ruth, which, as I mentioned before, is traditionally read by Jewish families for this festival of Shavuot that it also happens to be the day that the Holy Spirit fell upon the followers of Yeshua, gathered at the temple, a.k.a. the house, in full view of Jews and Gentile proselytes from, quote-unquote, every nation under heaven, um, the story is particularly important to understand. Is anyone truly barred by nationality from inclusion in the kingdom of heaven? The Jews of the first century certainly thought so. And in Luke 4, Yeshua was in danger of actually being tossed off a cliff for actually even suggesting that Yahweh was intervening in history on behalf of not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And it was probably a full 10 years before Peter was ready to receive that vision about Gentiles being made clean in Acts 10. Yahweh is all about forgiveness and redemption, okay? even to the point where we have to admit that he looks like an enabler from a human point of reference. And so when we look at the Sinai and beyond portions of Torah as often dealing with allowances and not original creation intent, it makes what happened with Ruth and David's kingship make a whole lot more sense. The prohibition on Moabites becomes more of a guideline for a certain kind of inclusion 
rather than an eternal truth. Just as no one would countenance soldiers forcibly taking POW women as brides or POWs as slaves in modern Christian society, despite Moses making allowances for it. Again, as Yeshua said, Moses' allowances versus God's creational attempt, uh, intent <coughs> it makes all the difference in the world when studying how Yeshua is the embodiment of Yahweh's character and love in the flesh. And I am going to drink a cup of hot tea and take a Ricola and take a break, and then we're going to come back. And I'll go record the second half of this <laughs> for... um. And we'll start talking about Ruth. Ruth's a wonderful story, and uh, she's the woman of valor. Be right back. Tyler Doan Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character and Context. This week we're talking about, um, we're doing a special Shavuot. We're taking a break from Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and talking about Ruth. And we're just getting ready to talk about Ruth, and hopefully my voice is going to hold out. If we have time at the end, I'll tell you about my surgery and everything that's been going on. But I had a tube down my throat on Monday, and I guess it doesn't take very long before I kind of just really lose my voice when I got that darn tickle. Ruth begins during the time of the judges, all right? And the interesting thing about Ruth, one of many, is that the book appears in different locations in Christian and Hebrew Bibles, um, coming up either between Judges and 1 Samuel or right after Proverbs. Both of these placements tell a really interesting story. Uh, in between Judges and 1 Samuel, that obviously gives us the chronological history of Israel and specifically of the line of David. When included after Proverbs, however, you have Ruth beginning right where Proverbs 31 leaves off, um, which details the, the excellent woman um, whom we would all have to describe, agree, describes Ruth to a T. She's the woman of valor, the woman of virtue. She is kind and self-sacrificing, humble and industrious, loyal and generous. And there is hardly a positive adjective that we could come up with that she would fail to measure up to. And she was born a Moabite, which is where we find her, you know, in Moab at the beginning of the book of Ruth. Famine has hit Israel and notably in the area of Bethlehem. And so the family of Elimelech emigrates from Israel to Moab on the other side of the Dead Sea, and interestingly, they're welcomed. They were allowed to enter the fields of Moab and settle there. And the boys married two of the daughters of Moab, Orpah and Ruth. Now, tragically, all three of the men of the house die, leaving Ruth, Orpah, and their mother-in-law, Naomi, widowed and vulnerable. Ruth and Orpah, however, they have options. They're still young and can marry again, so 
Naomi desires to send them back home to their families so they can get on with their lives, while she returns to Israel where the famine is now over. But the girls love their mother-in-law and refuse to leave, and this is not a normal state of affairs in the ancient world. After all, both marriages proved to be unfruitful as far as offspring and, in general, women in the ancient world were not treated remarkably well in their husbands' homes and especially not when there were no heirs produced. Naomi must have been a remarkably kind woman and the rest of the story backs it up. So, but finally, you know, Naomi does convince Orpah to go back home, but Ruth covenants herself to Naomi by famously saying, and I will include the oath form by translating Lord back to Yahweh. This is in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. So Ruth has invoked the name of Yahweh in an oath to do the following things. One, to go with Naomi. Two, to live with Naomi. Three, to become adopted by Naomi. Four, to devote herself to Yahweh alone. Five, until her death. This is no small oath in a culture where family is everything as as all ancient cultures were. Now likely... Ruth could have easily snagged another husband among her own people. At the very least, she was certainly better off in Moab among her kin than as a stranger in a strange land with no prospects whatsoever and presumably no way to feed herself, you know, much less feed her mother-in-law. And really quick here, I want to talk about widows. Two types of widows, provisional widows and true widows. A true widow in the ancient world is a woman who has no husband and no sons and has no prospects for that to ever change. This is Naomi. She is the absolute epitome of everything that Yahweh is talking about when he refers to vulnerable widows. She has no prospects and she cannot have any more children. And even if she could, they could not care for her. They wouldn't be old enough. Orpah and Ruth, on the other hand, are also bereft of both husband and sons, but they are young and have immediate prospects for remarriage in a time when many women, (coughs) excuse me, died young and men needed new wives to parent their existing children. If Ruth had left Naomi and stayed behind, she would have been remarried likely very quickly. It was mercy and love that compelled Naomi to send the girls home to their families. However, as a foreigner coming into a strange land and a widow with no husband to protect her, 
Ruth, in some ways, becomes the most vulnerable of the vulnerable, even more so than Naomi. She becomes the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, all wrapped up into one, and yet she takes it upon herself to become the provider for her mother-in-law. This is beyond exceptional in the pre-cross world. Oh, excuse me. Of course, as we see in chapter 2, Ruth worked extremely hard. Over the course of almost two months between Passover and Shavuot, gleaning not only barley, but also wheat from the fields of Boaz, a man who was close kin to Naomi's deceased husband. <clears throat> so this isn't her relative. This is Elimelech's relative. Now she finds favor in her eyes, in his eyes, excuse me, and he makes sure that she receives enough for both of them to eat and that she goes unmolested by the harvesters. Um, you know, things never change. You know, poor people get treated shamefully. You know, if they're out there gleaning, you know, they don't have their own land. And, um, you know, people who have things a little bit better in, in on our shame culture, they're going to, they're going to not be respectful. <clears throat> now, and, and as Ruth's a foreigner, um, the harvesters may feel they don't have to treat her as well as they would treat an Israelite woman especially since she has no family to protect her from being shamed. But Boaz places Ruth under his protection and later marries her. She becomes the mother of Obed, whose son Jesse becomes the father of King David. And so King David is only the third generation removed from being pure Moabite. Genetically. If we look at Moses' words as being set in stone, then we have a big, terrible problem. <clears throat> However, if we instead see them as a guideline that was put in place in order to forbid and discourage marriage to foreigners, close-by neighbor foreigners, um by assuring that their offspring would never be accepted into the congregation, um, you know, presumably under the assumption that they would be raised by a mother who was still a heathen, you know, then, then we don't have a problem at all, all right? And within a community-focused culture, a dyadic social entity, the idea of your child not being accepted into the congregation was something rather akin to the practice of shunning. <clears throat> Family honor would be adversely affected, um, and the child would be unmarriageable, you know, etc. That's what we get by going the route of this being more of, oh, jeez, an allowance sort of ruling. But what if we don't go that route? What if we set the words of Moses in stone? Then how can we justify this? How, in fact, could God justify his choice of David as king? And I know he doesn't have to justify anything, but let's talk about this anyway. Since a lot of people use the Bible to box Yahweh into what he can and cannot do. <clears throat> now, Moab was being punished for two crimes. The first, as you'll remember, was a lack of hospitality. They refused to feed their brothers and sisters when they were entering into their inheritance. 
The second was leading the men of Israel and no small number of leaders and elders into idolatry and sexual sin with foreign women. Well, I call this teaching Ruth in the reverse of the curse, you know, and with good reason because that's exactly what her actions amounted to. Now, Ruth, in her treatment of Naomi, the Israelite widow, went above and beyond to provide food when her ancestors failed to do so. And far from being a heathen woman leading Israelite men astray, she dedicated herself wholly to Yahweh and became the matriarch of a faithful line of Israelites. Well, for a while anyway. But the failings of the Davidic line are never blamed on Ruth and quite the opposite. This idea that anyone is beyond redemption simply because of bloodline or conversely guaranteed redemption because of bloodline certainly finds its death in the ministry of both John the Baptist and Yeshua. But really, we can... Oh, jeez. Oh, my throat. We can really find the roots for overturning Moses' ban of Moabites and their descendants from the assembly, you know, um, in the account of Yahweh's own words and decisions right after the flood. So we can find justification for this. We can find precedence for this. Uh, This is Genesis chapter 8, verses 21 through 22. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma... He said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. So, Yahweh looked at humanity after the flood. Well, what was left of it? Okay. And he saw a man who, although righteous compared to his generation, never bothered to plead with Yahweh for mercy uh, for the ones who were going to be killed like Abraham did. He had issues with alcohol and anger, um, despite being obedient enough to save his own life. And he saw um, Noah's offspring. Also, it's incredibly flawed. In short, Yahweh saw us for what we are, filled with evil inclinations from the youngest age, and he made a commitment to stick with us, endure with us, and to save us despite ourselves. Now, this is utterly remarkable. Noah found grace. He didn't earn it. Same with us. And so as long as we have God's revealed character throughout Scripture to trust in, there is no person... No genealogical line beyond salvation, or for that matter, guaranteed salvation. Not Moab, not Israel, not anyone. As John said, for God so loved the world. And not just some bloodlines. Now, people have always found grace with God, because that's just what he's about. Yahweh isn't an a legalist, which is why the scriptures are full of seeming contradictions. We want to hedge him in, but he refuses to allow us to do it. You know, people are wicked, but God is good. 
Ruth shows us that laws are not put in place to bar salvation, okay, to bar the gates of salvation, but instead for greater purposes than we sometimes want to imagine. We love to look at the Bible and see black and white, but the only black and white is the black ink on the white paper, all right? We want black and white because black and white, with black and white, there's no need to trust God or to increasingly know his character particularly well. We can say, <clears throat> he approves of this and he doesn't approve of this, no exceptions. He doesn't care about extenuating circumstances or about what we do and do not know. He's more interested in legalistic obedience than about our thinking about what love requires. But <clears throat> in reality, and Yeshua showed us this, Truly walking with God oftentimes involves choosing between commandments, as when Yeshua pointed as Yeshua pointed out on a number of occasions. Am I going to refrain from working on the Sabbath? Um, or am I going to save this animal from the ditch or this other man from drowning? And these were real debates within first century Judaism among the Pharisees and the Essenes, okay? Essenes didn't even want you to save a person from drowning. Well, I say Essenes, it's the Qumran Covenanters, who a lot of people think are the Essenes. We don't know for sure. Um, <coughs> which of these honors God? Which shows that we trust him to be the embodiment of love and wisdom, and which one portrays him as more of a lifeless computer only able to accept and reject input based on programming? And trust is really hard. We would rather think of him just giving us rules that we have to follow. And that's easy. That's why so many people just love religion. So that they can just follow the black and white rules and consequences to themselves and others be damned. All right. And this reminds me of a documentary I was watching on Tuesday with my mom called Heaven's Gate, Cult of Cults. And of course, I'd heard of this cult. And I think we all have. But I had no idea that these people lived this way for 22 years before killing themselves. And the rules, oh my gosh, all right? They were trying to earn elevation into a new sort of manifestation of reality. Really, so the aliens would come pick them up in the spaceship. Um, but, you know, <coughs> these rules, how... Oh denied reality and without the new creation renewal that we have in Christ there is just no way that it's going to work it was incredibly tragic but believers can do this too just in different ways but it amounts to the same thing the entire concept of earning favor is just so intoxicating and it puts us in the driver's seat but it leads to attitudes like allowing such and such a person to drown and an animal to needlessly suffer and to an entire people group um, being barred from joining the people of God if taken too far, okay? We have to allow our mercy or we have to allow for mercy and sanity or we're going to create conditions under which we ourselves are only saved in our imaginations, um, because we imagine ourselves to be obedient when really we're just obeying our interpretations with what everybody else does too. It's like when we pretend to have it all together but are falling apart in private. 
that's, you know, us trying to earn God's favor. It, it's just an illusion. We aren't as super spiritual as we think we are, and nobody is. So, anyway, in the end, you know, we have Ruth. Back to Shavuot here. Ruth is this person who exemplifies the biblical truth that no one is saved or damned based on their country or culture of origin. And Rahab's another. Rahab was a Canaanite. Yahweh neither owes damnation or salvation to anyone based upon the circumstances of their birth, because that would be unjust, and he is not unjust. Is Yahweh loyal to Abraham? Yes, absolutely. Does that create hard and fast rules for what Yahweh can and cannot do with individuals? Absolutely not. He's God, and so he does what is right. And what is right often looks counterintuitive to us because, as he pointed out after the flood, our hearts are inclined toward evil from our youth. We have our prejudices for and against others based on all sorts of things. In short, we are not suitable advisors for what is right and wrong, just and unjust when it really comes down to it. <clears throat> oh my gosh. So anyway, sorry that you've had to deal with my throat. I, ah, I really should have finished this last week and got it recorded and everything, but I did not. And lesson learned, if I ever have this happening again, I will know better. Anyway, so yeah, I had surgery on, uh, on Monday and I'm recording this, what, on the 13th. So I had surgery on the 10th. I'd been having problems for years. Of course, I've been having problems for decades, um, related to not, related to the reasons I can't have babies and why I was, I just always had miscarriages. And so I have multiple massive reproductive issues and, and I always have. But got to the point where it, it was at the same time that Andrew went at the hospital this fall for um, his first surgery. I started having some really severe problems that probably most women all think, oh, I know, it's gonna, and, and man, I'm going to spare you. But um, I developed a large tumor inside my uterus. And um, it just got to the point where I was having so many problems and we were worried about cancer. Had a biopsy in... March, um, finally found out in April that it was benign. So I didn't have, um, endometrial cancer, but they did find a, a, a sizable tumor. And, um, we just decided that because I was never able to, um, pregnancy, um, is a preventative against cancer. Breastfeeding is a preventative against cancer. When you cannot do these things, your body, kind of turns into a cancer factory. Um, it's kind of adding uh, insult to injury. Um, not only can you not have babies and you can't breastfeed babies, but, you know, going to get cancer too. Um, not for sure, but our, our levels are exponentially higher than the general population. So we just decided that um, instead of waiting for my uterus to just decide to get cancer, um, and kill me, uh, that we just decided to have it taken out. And so that was Monday and they did it with robotics. So they were just able to make three incisions in my abdomen. Um, and they were able to 
leave me with my one remaining ovary that I had left and uh, get all that out. But um, yeah, so I've got, it's, it's, it hurt more than I thought it would. <laughs> I thought it was actually not going to be a big deal. Um, but now I'm understanding I've got, I can't lift more than 10 pounds for like what weeks and weeks. I can't mow the lawn. I can't vacuum. I can't do all these things. Um, and it's crazy not being able to lift more than 10 pounds. And, you know, you, you accidentally do it once you go, okay, I understand now, you know, because you tear things and, and you get, um, scar tissue inside your abdomen and all that, all that stuff is bad. But, um, it was hard to do it, even though I'm almost 52 years old. Um, and there were never going to be any babies. Still, it's, it's hard to just really close off that, that era of your life and to sign those forms that say, yes, I understand that this surgery will render me sterile, even though for all intents and purposes I was. Anyway, but, um, I'm really grateful to be living in an age where I don't have to wait for cancer to just overtake my insides and and kill me, um, you know, on top of all the reproductive birth defects that, you know, it, it's just the way it was. And, um, of course, you know, we were able to adopt. And if you've, uh, heard that broadcast, you know, um, about our sons and, and, um, being their mom is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And I don't regret a moment of it. But I would be lying if I wouldn't say that I didn't wish that um, I had given birth to them and instead of uh, Stephanie, instead of adopting them. I, yeah, that's just something that, that women want to do. We want to feel like we belong. We want to feel like we're women like everybody else. Oh, well, we don't get everything we want. Anyway, so I'm on the mend and fortunately I had weeks and weeks recorded so I don't have to worry about that. Anyway, yeah. See you next week.